Um, it's good to see you here this morning, and uh, if you're joining us for the first time, uh, let me particularly uh, welcome you this morning. Uh, my name is Huey, and uh, I'm one of the ministers uh, here at this church. Uh, well, uh, as we've just heard uh, in God's word, uh, God's people have always been called to live a life that is different uh, from the nations, uh, to live a holy life, uh, because the God we worship is holy. Uh, and so we're going to be looking at that a uh, little bit today uh, through the book of Ephesians. And I, I'm going to ask God that he would help us uh, not only to understand what is there on the page, but also to live this out uh, in our lives. So will you join me as I pray? Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you that, that you have been uh, kind and tender-hearted and gracious towards us. Uh, Father, we know that we were people who were once dead in our sins and our trespasses, and yet you have made us alive in the Lord Jesus. And so we pray, Father, that as people who have been made alive to you, uh, that we might live for your glory. Uh, please help us to see uh, your glory and your holiness uh, today through the gospel, and uh, please help us to live a life of righteousness and holiness uh, in honour of you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, friends, I'm sure it's difficult to imagine someone like me anywhere near a catwalk. Is that true? But uh, I once found myself at a fashion show. Uh, it was actually a private fashion show put on by David Jones, uh, complete with catwalk, and models wearing the latest clothing. Uh, what was I doing there, you ask? Well, I had just been offered a job straight out of university at uh, one of the big accounting firms, and uh, very generously, uh, this firm uh, had uh, invited us to a fashion show and had given us $1,000 to spend on clothing. Uh, I think one of the, their clients was Country Road, and so they gave us $1,000 to spend on Country Road clothing. Uh, I think they were really nervous that as university students, we would rock up on our first day of, of work dressed in a tracksuit. And so uh, I remember buying some new shirts and this smart-looking suit, uh, a bit like Tony's, and I remember getting home and getting rid of all my disgusting university clothes. You know, the baggy jeans uh, were, were, were thrown out. The discolored t-shirt uh, was thrown out that I'd been wearing for years. The worn out shoes, they were all out the door. And I remember putting on this new suit and standing in front of a mirror thinking, you look all right. <laughs> you look all right. I was ready to leave my old life as a student behind and I was ready to start the new life of working as a professional. Uh, now, friends, uh, we've been working our way steadily through uh, the letter to the Ephesians, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And uh, I su suggested last week that the first half of Ephesians, chapters 1 to 3, are all about, well, it can be summed up as Christian theology. Uh, chapters 1 to 3 can be summed up as what God has done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. But the second half of the book, in verses 4 to 6, 
can be summed up as the Christian walk or the Christian life. Uh, Paul, in these chapters, is beginning to speak about the implications of all that God has done for us uh, in the first three chapters. Uh, and I want to suggest, uh, as, as Tony mentioned this morning, that uh, the passage that we're looking at this morning is really about the putting off of our old clothing, uh, the putting off of the old life before we were Christians, and putting on the new clothing that we have received when we became Christians. Uh, you can see, for example, the language of putting off our old clothing in chapter 4, verse 22, if you have your Bibles open there in front of you, chapter 4, verse 22, where Paul speaks about putting off your old self. Uh, and you can see the language of putting on the new clothing in verse 24, where he speaks about putting on the new self. Uh, it's an, an idea that is actually repeated all throughout this passage, as Paul encourages these Christian people to be godly and to be holy and righteous in their living. What spiritual clothing are you wearing at the moment, friends? Uh, if you could look in the spiritual mirror, uh, what would you see yourself wearing, I wonder? Now, the first thing that Paul mentions there as he speaks about how the Christians around Ephesus are to live is that they are now no longer to live like the Gentile pagans. They are no longer to live like uh, the pagans who do not know God from which they have been taken out of. Uh, you can see it there in verse 17, can't you? Have a look with me at verse 17. Paul says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Uh, one of the things I think the ESV translation that uh, most of us use does not get completely right here is that it begins with the word now in that verse, doesn't it, in verse 17. Uh, in the original language, it actually starts with the word so or therefore. In other words, what Paul says here follows on from what we were looking at last week where Paul speaks about uh, every member of the church uh, using their gifts and working together to build up the church in number and in maturity. Um, and how do we do that? Well, one of the ways is that we must stop living like the Gentile pagans. Do you see the argument? See, an important way in which you and I must build up the church is by living differently to those who do not know God. If I can put that in a, in a negative, if you want to discourage your church, then live like those who do not know God. But what are the Gentiles like? Well, uh, I want you to see here that Paul speaks about what they are like on the inside before he starts to describe what they are like on the outside, in their outward behaviour. Uh, you can see what they are like on the inside in verse 18. Verse 18. Now, uh, there's a bit of a, a chain of logic uh, in verse 18, and you can see it there in the words, um, uh, what is it, therefore, or due to, and so forth. And so I think um, in order to understand verse 18, uh, it, it's useful kind of to go backwards. 
Um, and so, for example, if you look at the end of verse 18, you'll notice that the Gentile pagan is someone who has a hardness of heart. A hardness of heart. Uh, the word hardness there is a word that, is, that was used to describe granite, uh, which is a type of rock, isn't it? It's what your kitchen bench tops are made from. It's hard to penetrate. It's uh, immovable. It's unresponsive. What Paul is saying here is that the Gentile pagan is willfully unresponsive to anything that God says. And what does that hardness of heart lead to? Well, if you work backwards, you'll be able to see there that it leads to ignorance about God. Gentile pagans do not have a true knowledge of God, not because there is no opportunity, opportunity to know about God. You know, particularly here in Sydney, there are good Bible-teaching churches in virtually every suburb. But it's because they have willfully rejected God in their hearts that they do not have a true knowledge of God. And what does this ignorance lead to? Well, you can see there that it leads to the Gentile pagan person being alienated from the life of God, being separated from the eternal life that God offers in the gospel. Uh, that's why a few chapters earlier, Paul was able to say that Gentile uh, people, before they become Christians, which were what you and I were like, are spiritually dead. Uh, they're, they're like a bunch of flowers that have been severed at the roots. You know, they, we might look alive for, for a little while, but because they've been severed from its life source, well, they will soon die. They are alienated and cut off from God. And what does this alienation lead to? Well, it leads them to be darkened in their understanding, notice. In other words, they become blind to the truth so that they cannot see God and his ways. At the end of verse 17, Paul also speaks about Gentile pagans living in the futility of their minds. Darkened in their understanding, futile in their minds. It's not that Gentile pagans are incapable of rational thought. No, non-Christian people are some of the most intelligent people that you and I probably know. However, because they have rejected God, their spiritual thinking is futile. They end up worshipping created things, which always leads to a dead end, rather than worshipping the Creator who offers true life and true meaning and true satisfaction. However, friends, it is true, isn't it, that what goes on inside a person will find expression in the outer life, in the outward behavior of a person, isn't it? Uh, the Bible often uses the image of a tree, uh, you may have noticed. Uh, I know that some of you like to drive uh, to orchids when it's apple season to uh, pick apples off, off the trees. Um, you know, every time you go to an apple farm, you see apples, don't you? Because the tree itself is an apple tree. You're not going to find oranges growing on apple trees. You see, what the tree really is, 
on the inside determines what kind of fruit comes out on the outside. Uh, what kind of fruit does the Gentile pagan uh, bear? Well, you can see it there in verse 19, can't you? Verse 19, uh, they become callous. You know, when you develop a callous on your skin, uh, it's hard to feel anything, isn't it? Uh, you actually become desensitized uh, to feeling anything. The Gentile pagan becomes desensitized to sin and rebellion against God. It just becomes a way of life. Further, you can see there that they have given themselves up to sensuality, which is a word that means shameless debauchery. Out in the open, debauchery. Further, Paul says that they are greedy to practice every kind of impurity. The word impurity uh, just means vile immorality. Notice that they are greedy to, uh, to uh, practice this kind of immorality because this kind of immorality never satisfies. You have to keep on doing more and more and more because it promises so much, but it never actually satisfies. And you'll notice there that they are also greedy to practice every kind of impurity because there is actually no limit to the different expressions of immorality that people engage in, especially sexual immorality, which I think is what this uh, passage is, is getting at. Now, friends, uh, I don't think that Paul here is saying that every single Gentile, non-Christian person is is like this in every way. But he is describing the general character of the Gentile pagan world, isn't he? And I hardly think we can argue with him about this one. You know, if you walk around the city of Sydney, do you think you will see these things? I mean, walk through one of the residential colleges at university during one of its drunken parties. Do you think you will see some of these things? Or walk through the offices where you work at night or the streets where you live, where there are extramarital affairs and things like wife swapping that destroy marriages and children. Do you think you will see some of these things? Or walk through Westfield where you have bigger-than-life posters of half-naked women in full view of children who are walking around. Or walk through the Sydney gay and lesbian Mardi Gras, which is often depicted as enlightened freedom, and yet which God calls the practice of every kind of impurity. Now, not all Gentile pagans might be like this in every way, but this is the character of the world that we live in, friends. And if you are a Christian person, then what God says is you must not walk like the Gentile pagans walk in the futility of their thinking. But how is it that we can walk differently to the Gentiles? If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you will know how difficult it is to live a life that is different to the world. Well, Paul's answer is that if you and I are genuinely Christian people, 
then we need to realize that in God's kindness, he has actually made you and me a new person. A new person. You can see it there that Paul begins uh, the next few verses by speaking of what these Christians in Ephesus, uh, sorry, what happened to these Christians in Ephesus when they became Christians in the first place. And so, for example, he speaks in verse 20 about these people having learned Christ. That's an interesting way of putting it, isn't it? But what Paul is getting at here is that you become a Christian not simply by learning a set of abstract ideas. Becoming a Christian is not like learning maths or learning science or learning geography. Becoming a Christian is by learning a person. You become a Christian by learning the person of the Lord Jesus Christ as the, as the Christ or the King or the Lord or Master of your life. And how did this happen for the Ephesian Christians? Well, um, it happened in the same way that it happens for all of us. For you'll notice there that it, it happens through hearing the good news of Jesus and through someone teaching them the truth about Jesus, that he is the Christ who died for your sins and, and rose again to new life and who is now seated at God's right hand as the king and ruler of this world who calls on everyone to turn back to him in repentance and in faith. And what happened when they became Christians? Well, Paul goes on to say the astonishing truth that something fundamentally miraculous and life-altering happened the day they became a Christian. For you can see there in verse 22 that what happened is that they put off their old self in the same way that you would discard an old piece of clothing and they put off and they put on their new self. They put off their old sinful self of sin and rebellion against God and opposition to his ways. And they put on the new self which is created in righteousness and holiness, like Jesus. Now, other parts of scripture speak about the Christian person being clothed with the righteousness of Christ, doesn't it? So that when God sees the Christian person, he now no longer sees the sin, but he now sees the righteousness and holiness and goodness of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. You see, fundamentally, God makes Christian people into new people in their inner being. And brothers and sisters, I cannot stress enough just how important this is for you and me living the Christian life and growing in our godliness and holiness. And I'll tell you why. Many people think that becoming a Christian person is just about becoming a little bit better people. Is that true? I wonder whether you think about being a Christian in that way. You know, many people come to church thinking that I am here to be a little bit better as a person, a little bit more moral, a little bit more kind 
a little bit more generous. So that being a Christian becomes an exercise in self-improvement that is actually no different to any other self-improvement system or religion. But friends, that is not Christianity, is what Paul is saying. What Paul and what God is saying here is that if you are a Christian person, then God has made you fundamentally a new person. On the day that you became a Christian by turning to Jesus as your Lord and Saviour, you put off your old self that lived a life of continuous sin and rebellion against God, and you were given a new self, a new person, made to be like the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so the way I am to live the Christian life is not to think that I somehow need to become a little bit better in order for God to be pleased with me, but to think of yourself as a new person and to be that new person in this world more and more. Uh, here is my citizenship certificate. Uh, on the 31st of July, 1984, uh, I became a citizen of this country. I became a new person, if you like. I had a new identity. I was entitled to all the, the rights and privileges of this wonderful country. But it's not as though everything about me changed on the first day I became a citizen, is it? But gradually, because I was a new person with a new identity, things did change. My language changed. I can't speak Korean anymore. English became my preferred language. My tastes changed. I suddenly started to enjoy things like Vegemite. The things I did changed. I watched cricket for days. You see, it is impossible to be a new person with a new identity without changing more and more into that image or into that identity. That's what God is saying here, isn't it? When you became a Christian, you became a new person with a new identity. Your old life was destroyed with Jesus on the cross. Your new life has begun. And so be that new person that God has made you to be. And so, friends, you might be here this morning and you are really struggling with sin and ungodliness in your life. It may be some type of sexual sin. It may be greed. It may be idolatry of some kind. You may be feeling trapped, and as a Christian person, you deeply yearn for God to change you. Well, God's word to you this morning is not, you've got to be a little bit better as a person, but God's word to you this morning is to uh, remember who you are. Remember who you are. You have put off your old self. God has given you a new self. And so live in the light of that new self. But friends, it may also be the case that some of us are not pursuing godliness and not pursuing holiness in our living because, well, we are not really new people in the first place. 
You've been coming to church, perhaps even for a long time, but you are not saved. If your profession of faith has made no discernible impact or difference to the way that you live or the things that you live for or the attitudes that you have, then it's hard to conclude that you are a new person, isn't it? And so if that is you, then why don't you turn to God today, throw off your old self of sin and rebellion and ignorance and putting God aside in your life and receive his gift of the new life that has been won for you by the Lord Jesus Christ. It might be a bit embarrassing admitting to everyone that after all these years, you may not be a Christian person. Now, per- personally, I think your Christian friends would be more excited than anyone else if you tell them that. But it's better to be embarrassed now in front of your friends and get right with God than to actually be embarrassed before the Lord Jesus Christ on the last day when he returns. And so will you do something about that today? Well, friends, uh, if you and I have been made into new people, then it's right to expect that we will not live like the Gentiles, but we will have a new walk or a new life in our outer expression. And so uh, in the last part of our passage this morning, Paul goes on to speak about this new walk or this new life. Uh, Now, we won't have time to look at all of these things in a great amount of detail this morning, but uh, I want you to notice that he mentions four things here, four things. Firstly, in verse 25, Paul speaks about falsehood. He says that we are to put away falsehood. Um, I've become uh, more and more aware uh, in my own life of my own propensity to tell lies, uh, it's often done in very pious ways, you know. I'll, I'll say to someone, um, you know, I'll pray for you, because that makes me look good, doesn't it? I'm the pious one. But often I don't follow through. And next time I say I'll pray for you, why don't you come and ask me the following week whether I actually did it or not? I think that will help me. But there are other ways of speaking falsely, aren't there? You know, you can exaggerate things often so that other people will find you more interesting. You can tell half-truths in order to protect yourself. You can turn up to meetings, not at the time that you agreed on, but many minutes later. And Paul says that you are to put all these things aside. But the wonderful thing about the new life that God has given us is that it's not all about the negative God doesn't just say to us, don't do this and don't do that. For while we are to put away certain things, notice there that he also gives us positive ways of living that enhance living and that build up the church. And so, Paul says, after putting away falsehood, that the positive way that we are to live is by speaking the truth with one another, being honest with one another, and being reliable with our words. And here's the thing. 
The reason why Paul says we are to live like this is because we are members of one another, notice. You see, Paul has not really left the discussion about how we are to grow as church. For as we uh, reject the Gentile pagan life and as we speak the truth to one another, well, we grow together as the body, as different parts of the body of Christ of which we are members. Uh, Secondly, in verse 26, Paul talks about anger. He says that in our anger, we are not to sin. The phrase, be angry and do not sin, uh, is taken from Psalm 4, where King David is rightly angry with some people. Uh, You see, in the Bible, it's, it's actually right to get angry about certain things. Um, It's right to get angry over things like injustice or oppression or human sinfulness. But when was the last time you or I got angry about injustice or oppression or human sinfulness in this world? You see, our problem is that we don't get angry about the right things, but we get angry about the petty things and the trivial things. And the great temptation with anger is that it can give birth to other sins. You see, in my anger, I can become proud and self-righteous. Or in my anger, I can murder. Or in my anger, I can engage in sinful speech. And so Paul says, do not sin in your anger. Further, notice that he gives a timeline for anger. He says again in verse 26, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Now, uh, I don't think uh, Paul, what Paul is saying here is, uh, you know, he's giving a strict timeline as to how long our anger can go for. You know, if you go past sunset and you are still angry, then you are sinful. But if you kind of let go of your anger uh, just before the sun sets, then you're okay. Um, in fact, uh, I, I, I read the other day that if you go to uh, Finland or something, uh, their day lasts for about three months. Um, that's a good place to be a Christian, isn't it? But what he is saying here is that we are not to delay to forgive. In our anger, uh, we are not to delay to forgive. We are to deal with our anger and not let it build to bitterness and resentment, and so give the devil an opportunity to to destroy your relationships with others. It's good advice for a church, and it's good advice for marriages as well, isn't it? Uh, Thirdly, in verse 28, Paul talks about theft. He says that the thief must no longer steal. Now, I would be pretty surprised, I think, if... uh, there were lots of us in this room who regularly go into shops and kind of put things in your handbag and and walk out with them. But we find more middle-class ways of stealing, don't we? Uh, You know, white-collar crime is rife in our offices and our workplaces, with many people stealing everything from money to stationery from their employers. We may steal from the government by fudging the numbers on our tax returns. Uh, We might steal by illegally downloading movies or music, thinking, well, you know, no one will know and there'll be no consequences. 
even though God knows. And you will have to give an account to him. But rather than steal, Paul says positively that you and I are to labour and do honest work with our hands. Why should we do this? Well, it's so that rather than sponging off other people, well, we can have things to share with others who are in need, whether it's those in material need or whether it's those in gospel need. Uh, friends, did you know that the person who built our St. Thomas uh, Enfield Church uh, over in the next suburb was once a thief? Did you know that? Uh, his name was Thomas Hind, and he was actually sent out to Sydney um, as a convict for highway robbery. But he became a Christian, and when he was given a pardon, he, not, he became rich, and he not only built the church over there in Enfield, but he contributed significant amounts of money to the work of the gospel and also to philanthropy in general. You see, it is only by the power of the gospel that a bandit like that can change to a benefactor, a thief into a giver. It's a wonderful story. And finally, in verse 29, uh, Paul talks about sins of speech. He says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. Uh, the word corrupting there literally means rotten. He's talking about things like swearing, vulgar jokes of a sexual nature, whether uh, directly through our lips or online or on Facebook. He's talking about malicious gossip. He's talking about words that are spoken in jest, but which have been carefully chosen to tear people down rather than building them up. But rather than corrupting talk, Paul speaks positively that we are to speak words that are useful for encouraging and building up so that people might come to know more and more the grace of God in their lives. And in all this, Paul says in verse 30, not to grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Uh, it's an interesting thing to say here, isn't it? I mean, why not speak about grieving Jesus? or grieving the Father in heaven by the way that we live? Why the Holy Spirit? Well, I wonder whether it's because Paul knows that it is the Spirit of God who makes you and me new people. It is the Holy Spirit who has given us new birth as children of God. It is the Holy Spirit who has given us new hearts. And so each time we don't live in the light of what he has made us, it grieves the Holy Spirit of God himself. And so, brothers and sisters, what spiritual clothing are you wearing at the moment? What God says to us this morning is that if you and I are Christian people, then we are the people who have actually gotten rid of our old clothing, of sin and rebellion, that sinful self that ignored God, and you and I have put on new clothing, which is the new you. The new you that God has created for himself to live in righteousness and holiness like the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to say, friends, that that is great news. For it means that it is now possible to no longer walk like the Gentile pagan world who do not know God. And it's possible to live a new life 
uh, that not only pleases God, but which, but which also builds up the church as we speak the truth in love, as we forgive one another, as we share our possessions with those in need, and as we speak words that build one another up in the faith rather than tear one another apart. And so, friends, remember who you are. Remember what God has clothed you in and live the new you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have rescued us from the darkness and you have shone the light of the gospel into our hearts. Uh, we thank you for the work of your spirit in our lives who has taken away our hearts of stone and have given us new hearts and a new birth as your children and as your people. Now, Father, we pray that you would help us to live this new life. Uh, we all find this hard to do. And we pray in particular this morning for those who are caught in sin or struggling to live the Christian life in the midst of a pagan world. And we would pray, uh, asking you to grant repentance and the strength to live that new life that you have given. And we ask that you would help all of us uh, not to grieve your spirit in the way that we live, but that you would help us to be more and more like your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to be people who speak truth rather than falsehood, who get angry about the right things but do not sin, who give and share rather than steal, and who build one another up with our words rather than tearing people down. Uh, we pray that the gospel will so shape our lives that we will grow in our godliness and in our holiness in a way that builds your church and shines like a light in the midst of the darkened world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.